My name is Carl. I'm the college pastor here. Just want to say good well, good welcome. <laughs> there we go. I just wanted to say good welcome to you this morning. So glad you guys decided to join us. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, which is not an easy book to preach on. And this is my first time preaching on it um, for us as a church. And so I just thought I'd begin just by starting out with a few of my thoughts broadly on the book of Revelation and how, how I feel it's important to approach it. And even just to share a little, just honestly, from my heart about how I feel. And so, um, how many of you know of Martin Luther? Martin Luther, the reformer, right? He was a catalyst in the Great Reformation, right? The 95 Theses. It was 95, right? Thank you. The, 90, the 95 Theses. This guy was not afraid to pick a fight. And he wasn't fighting senselessly. He was fighting for God's word. Because in that time, it was being misused to abuse people, to, to you know, mislead them and misdirect them and gain from them. That is not the way of Jesus. And so thank God for Martin Luther stepping in. I don't know if you knew this. I was reading this this week that Martin Luther was the first one to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into German. Up until that point, it was written in German, but it was translated from the Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible. So he took it from the original into German. And I think that's pretty sweet. Uh, some, some other things I learned about Martin Luther is he did not particularly like the book of James. How many of you guys knew that? He called it the epistle of straw. And so... Yeah, that doesn't sound very, very good. He definitely had some frustration with the book. Now, modern people nowadays look back on his writings, and some of them have assumed and even made the claim that they think he wished it wasn't in the canon, that he wished it wasn't in the Bible. And I think that's a pretty big claim. I think that's taking a little too much liberty. I definitely think he had some frustrations. In his writings, he talks about how he was frustrated with the book of James because he was focusing on grace. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. That's what he was trying to get people to understand what faith was like, how we experience salvation. And people would come to him with arguments through the book of James trying to say, no, no, works, you need works. And, and we know now works definitely show what's going on in our heart, right? And so that is very important. But he was frustrated because in these theological battles, people would get really hung up on the book of James in his time. And so Martin Luther didn't particularly hate the book of James. He just didn't like how it was being used in his day and age. I feel similarly when it comes to the book of Revelation, when I look at it, just like in, the, in our specific modern context, I just haven't loved the way that the book of Revelation has been used in the modern church. I, I don't like the fruit I see. And Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. And the fruit that I'm seeing is obsession, fear, stubbornness, conspiracy even, division. Entire church groups agree completely theologically, but have split on specific revelation passages. Just about how the end is going to go. Wasn't it, didn't Jesus say like, they will know we are Christians by our love for one another? And didn't Paul say, 
make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so for me, I just look at this and I say, what's going on? Especially because this is apocalyptic, prophetic literature, we need to be so careful when we are making hard line stances on things. Second Timothy 3, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, reproofing, so that the person of God may be fully equipped for good works. And so I just, from that, I understand that if the word of God is not bearing the fruit of righteousness, good works, and the fruit of the spirit in our lives, then we're wielding it improperly. And so when I look at this, it says, okay, we need to take a different approach here. And look, I, I know nobody is aspiring to bear the fruit of obsession or stubbornness or division or conspiracy or fear. It's obvious there's something underneath it. What we really want is assurance. Assurance as to what is to come and what our role is in that. Assurance isn't a bad thing, but our assurance needs to be anchored in the person of Jesus, in him. And when we read prophetic literature, guys, like I was saying, we need to get really low. I, I think about the Pharisees Back in Jesus' day, they were the theological bigwigs. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. They knew the law and they knew the prophets. They knew the messianic prophecies. They knew Isaiah. They knew, they knew all of this stuff. And yet they were the ones ultimately who drove the movement to kill our true Messiah. They, they knew so much and they missed it. They missed him and they killed him. Let us not make the same mistake. And for us, I think what is at stake when it comes to our translation of and our opinions on Revelation, what's at stake is our life, how we live our life and how we advance the kingdom of God or how we don't do that. I think essentially our practice of Christianity is in some ways at stake. Because a lot of times we get wrapped up in these theological arguments and we forget actually our number one rule is to love God and love other people. Love our, specifically our neighbors. And so the root of our assurance is not found in knowing what or when necessarily. It's found in knowing who presides over it. So this chapter, when I got assigned this chapter, I said, oh boy. <laughs> when I read through it the first time, oh my goodness. Because this chapter is a foundational passage for flat earthers, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Bible Code fanatics. So uh, yeah. I, it was loaded, and I said, Chad, please no. <laughs> no, no. I said, all right, here we go. As I've been studying and reading and reading and reading, because preaching on Revelation is a weighty task, many, many commentaries, they definitely view things differently. They have different points of view, but all of the ones that I read agreed on one thing, that 
This passage, Revelation 7, is meant to comfort God's people. That is the primary purpose. I like how Daryl Johnson said it. He says, and I quote, The two-scene vision of Revelation 7 is the most comforting of all the visions. I'm using this phrase, most comforting, both in the modern sense of the word, creating a state of well-being, and in the original sense of the word, which is fortifying for courageous action. I love that. The English word comfort comes from the Latin com forte. Com means with, forte means strength. To comfort is to give strength in order to be and do what we ordinarily could not be or do. That is the message of Revelation 7. Not that the earth is flat. Therefore, I've titled this message, Conspiracy or Comfort, Take Your Pick. And so as we, as we jump in, as I'm about to read this, whenever we come to God's word, we stand to receive from the Lord. God has a blessing for you today. Will you receive it? <clears throat> Revelation 7, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, I'm just going to pause here. Four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds. Chad told me this story this week about a Bible scholar named Ben Witherington. He was a scholar, I believe, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, he was pretty well known. He was a really knowledgeable guy, and he used to travel to different conferences and speak on different theological topics. And he was staying in a hotel one night getting ready for um, his upcoming conference, and he turned on the TV and he saw the moon landing. I think that was 1969, right? He was watching the moon landing. He was just, whoa, that's really cool. We put someone on the moon. The next morning, he uh, got into a cab on his way to the conference and, you know, just making small talk with the cab driver because they didn't have cell phones back then and small talk was actually a good thing. Um, and he said, man, isn't it so cool that we put someone on the moon? That is so, that's so great to me. And he, the cab driver said, no, 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 no. That's Hollywood. That is Hollywood. Do you know how much the government stands to gain from this and all this stuff? He said, wait, why do you... Why do you believe that? He said, I have proof, and it's right here. Revelation 7.1, four corners of the earth. The earth is flat. There's no, there's nothing. Like, and he, he goes off on it. You would be really hard-pressed to find a credible theological person who would make that statement. This is meant as a metaphorical statement. People even use this term, four corners, even today. The whole earth, yeah, every four, all four corners. It's a, it's a frame of reference helping us understand four corners, four winds. It's saying, it's encapsulating it, all of it. The whole earth, all of it. But if flat earth is your cup of tea, you're drinking it without me. Uh, next, let's go verses two through eight. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God, he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and sea. He says, don't harm the earth and sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then the number of the sealed. 
144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so I remember this number, 144,000, and it, it like immediately jumped in my eye. I was like, why do I know this number? And it reminded me, as I thought about it, of a conversation I had when I was in a college ministry. How many of you guys had the joy of being in a college ministry during your days? It's, it was really fun, really formative time. You have some really funny and out there theological conversations. I will say that. And I remember some conversations we had just about different ways of belief, different, different types of Christianity or ways that people interpret it. And we stumbled across Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe that only 144,000, they take this number, and from that, they believe that only 144,000 will be saved will experience salvation, 144,000 humans ever. That's crazy. That's such a small number, especially when you consider how big the world is today, 8 billion. And so I, as I continued to dig a little bit deeper in on this, because I just didn't want to say something that wasn't true, I dug way too deep into a rabbit hole. <laughs> and um, I ended up at the very bottom finding that they believe most of these spots are taken at this point. And they believe maybe 8,500 spots are left. So better get your ticket punched. Um, I just, I don't want anyone to feel small, even um, if you believe something that is incorrect. But Jehovah's Witnesses take this stance and it's crazy to me because verse 9, the very next verse contradicts this. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get to that, but... There are several credible ways to interpret this portion. And I'm just going to touch on two. It seems like primarily there are, there are two camps, ways to interpret this. Um, the first way is to take it literally, as in there are numbered 144,000 Jews, Israelites by birth, who will be sealed during the Great Tribulation. Now, this is where opinions branch further. Sealed from what? What does that mean? There isn't much given to that. And so, yeah, are they sealed from bodily harm? Are they sealed from some tribulation? Like, in what way are they sealed from the tribulation? Physical, spiritual, is their salvation the thing that's sealed? Are they still going to experience hardship and pain and whatnot? Unsure. People have taken different sides. Feel free to take yours. The second way that um, people interpret this portion is they believe this 144,000 is figurative and they believe this applies to all believers, both born Israelites and Gentiles. And their reasoning is built on three things. Number one, verse three says, let us seal the servants of God on their foreheads. And they say, aren't all believers in Jesus servants of God? Second, um, they take that passage in Romans 11 where Paul says that all believers, Gentiles, they are grafted in to Israel. Not only are we saved, but we are grafted into the family of God. So doesn't that mean we are part of the family of God? 
And then third, and this one I found pretty interesting, was they think that the genealogy here is making a pretty strong statement. Now, uh, genealogies are very important. I'm sure that you know that they're important because they're all over the Bible. It's that portion that you skip every time. Um, And I've skipped them too. But they're all over. And they're really important, especially recognizing birth order. And if you remember in, I believe it's in 2 Samuel, when the prophet Samuel is going to the house of Jesse to pick the next king, he sees his sons in birth order all the way down. God says, no, 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 no. And then very last, David, yes. Birth order is really important. This is not something that you mess up. This is something that is well known. However, if you look at this genealogy, it's scrambled. Specifically in two ways. There are two things that are wrong. Number one, um, Judah is first. That's not how it happened. Birth order, Reuben was first. I think Judah was uh, third or fourth. I think he was fourth. And so why was he moved to the top? This is where they believe that they moved him to the top to make a statement about the Messiah, about Jesus. Specifically, Judah was first because he was the line of kings through which the Messiah did come, Jesus. And Jesus saved both Jews and Gentiles. And that was unexpected. He grafted in the Gentiles, all believers, allowing every nation, tribe, and tongue to become part of the family of God. Is that what he's saying there? That's what they believe. The second one I found uh, even more interesting and a little bit more convincing to me. If you read through this list, you'll notice that Dan is omitted, the tribe of Dan. He was one of the original 12 brothers of Israel, of Jacob, and he's omitted for this list for Manasseh. And Manasseh, if you remember, he's one of Joseph's sons. What is this statement here? As I was reading into it, Manasseh, he's the son of Joseph and, I don't know how to say this, Azanath, his wife, an Egyptian, an Egyptian woman who was one of, if not the first instance of someone from another nationality, tribe or tongue, being grafted into Jacob's line, being grafted into Israel. And so Manasseh is part Egyptian, part Israel. He was graft, she was grafted in. What is this statement making? We're not sure. But it seems like there are possibilities that this is saying this could be everyone. So whatever your decision is on who this is referring to, the question comes down to how many? Is this number 144,000 actually literal? Now, let's do some math. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, right? 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Still with me? So, they believe the 12s come from 12 tribes, 12 apostles. And then they multiply that by 10 cubed. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of when Jesus was teaching on forgiveness. Peter came to him and says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven? As if it's impressive. And here's the reality. Forgiving someone for the same thing seven times, (laughs) that's pretty impressive. 
But Jesus says no. 70 times 7. Right? This is what um, Daryl Johnson calls Hebrew math. He says Jesus does a little Hebrew math here. And so let's look at that. He says 7 times 7 times 10. And so when we look at this, when we look at that teaching from Jesus, we don't think, okay, 7 times 7, 49 times 10, 490, 490 times I have to forgive. Now I'm just going to keep track and I'm going to, that's not what we do. The point that Jesus is making there is a lot. You need to forgive a lot, more than you can count. And so our response to Jesus' Hebrew math here, 7 times 7 times 10, is that's a big number. I need to forgive a lot. And so let's apply that Hebrew math to the 144,000. 12 times 12 times 10. That's a big number. Times 10 again. That's a really big number. Times 10 again again. That is a really, really big number. Maybe as if to say a crowd so large that you cannot number them. However you land, one word, I think, in this passage should really stick out to us. Sealed. The servants of God are sealed. And here, specifically, they seal God's servants on their forehead. I'm not even going to get into all the theories on what that means. But nonetheless, the point is they are sealed as a means of assurance for whatever is to come. Does that sound familiar? This passage in Ephesians 1, 13 says, In him, in Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. 2 Corinthians 1, 22, He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Ephesians 4.30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Sealed, sealed, sealed. Even if, this is my point, even if sealed on the forehead before the great tribulation is only for born Israelites, we need not fear. Because we as believers in Jesus are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit from now until the very end, the day of redemption. We don't need to be afraid. And this passage sometimes has provoked fear. Am I part of that? Am I going to be sealed? Fear for believers in Jesus, those who are confident in our salvation because we've put our faith in Jesus. Fear leads down a path not meant for us. First John 4, it says, perfect love casts out fear. And if you fear, you have not yet been perfected in love. I think a lot of times when I read that, I'm like, man, I still fear a lot of stuff. So, man, I got to get better at God's love. But I don't think that's how we should approach it. I think the message here is God wants to love the fear out of you. Like, (laughs) God wants to do something radical in your life. And so, here are some verses for our fear. They're, they're all over scripture. I'm just going to choose three. One of them, Psalm 34, 4 through 5. I sought the Lord 
And he answered me and he rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This right here is God's design for us when we're afraid to come to him. To come literally to him. Be present with God to ask him for help and he will answer us in one way or another. Where's our confidence here? In this passage, the confidence is in his action, the Lord's action. Not in just something I know, it's in his protection. That's real. That's the substance of faith is in trusting ourselves to him. Psalm 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength. He is a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea and its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Does that picture not look apocalyptic to you? And so even in tribulation, even in the end, God is our refuge and strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. We're to come to him. And last, but definitely not least, this is one of my favorites. I don't think I put this on the screen. I'm sorry. You'll just have to listen. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present. And get this, nor things to come nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing's going to separate us. Absolutely nothing. So when we come to the tribulation, it's, we can't be separated from God's love. He begins the second vision here in chapter seven. Look what happens starting in verse nine. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe and people and language, which no one could number standing before the throne, before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out loud in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people? In white robes. And where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. Then he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, great tribulation. This is where we get a lot of splits when it comes to theological standing. Like where you, what you think is going to happen. There's ah mill, pre-mill, post-mill. Is it going to happen before the millennium or after? Is it happening during the millennium? Is it happening now? There's a lot of different viewpoints. I don't want to dig into all of that. Feel free. There are so many good resources, so many good commentaries on this. But what do we know about tribulation? There is a lot of mystery around it, but what do we know about tribulation in general? Actually, in chapter one of Revelation, if you remember, John calls himself a fellow partaker in the tribulation. 
Tribulation is any time of trouble or distress for God's people. Tribulation, if you look at it in the Greek, is this word thalipsis. And thalipsis, at its root, means pressure. And more accurately, great crushing pressure. So my question is, since AD 33, when Jesus died, rose, and was ascended, have we had a period of not tribulation? I don't think so. There's definitely been times where it ebbs and flows, and sometimes we feel it on a global scale, but sometimes we don't. I, it ebbs and flows. We have all experienced tribulation as a follower of Jesus. All of us, we're all partakers. But this passage is referring to the great tribulation, which seems to be a specific period that in the Greek, it says megathalipsis. Great crushing pressure before the day of the Lord. Jesus speaks on this in Matthew 24. Also, it's in Daniel chapter 7. And the question always comes to, when is this going to take place? First, my hint is everybody who's guessed so far has been wrong. <laughs> but it comes to this question, when is it going to happen? It seems like every generation, one after another, since Jesus was on earth, has believed there in the end. Do you remember like Paul, Peter, they reference in their letters in these last days, they thought they were in the last days. You know, so many generations after or before us have thought that. I even have um, a distant family member. I, I don't know. Uh, it's so distant. I don't know if it's a family friend or whatnot. It's just a story that's been told to me that um, this Man was so zealous. He loved the Lord. He loved God. He loved his word. And he was so convinced that he was in the last days that he didn't buy life insurance and that he didn't plan for money after his death. And mu probably much to the chagrin of his wife who survived him. But it impacted his life in a radical way. And, and God rest him. But was he right? No, like we're still going. And so it's, it's important how we apply these things to our lives. Um, Matthew 24 is kind of funny to me. If you've ever read it out, I would really encourage you to. This is Jesus' words on the end. Um, and it's funny to me because Jesus begins by giving us some signs. He gives us like 20-some verses of signs and what is going to happen before the end. And the reason it's funny is because at the very end, he drops this little number on us. Matthew 24, 36 says, but that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. And get this, nor the son, what? But only the father. And I'm going to skip eight verses here and just for sake of time. Jesus essentially talks about a thief breaking into a house and the homeowner's asleep and he wishes he was awake. Verse 44, so you also must be ready. Because the son of man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. When you don't expect him. It's both Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Peter in 2 Peter 3. They attest that the end will come. And I quote, like a thief in the night. No one's going to know. Nobody is going to know. And so Jesus, his, his recommendation to us is be ready. And it doesn't mean build a bunker. It means live ready to meet your maker. 
Live ready to stand before him. Live ready. And so I want us, and we can apply it here. We can apply it to so many different things. I want us to um, try this spiritual discipline. This spiritual discipline called the holy I don't know. Where when we are unsure or when there is a gray area, we can say, I don't know. And I think we just in our day and age, we have so boiled things down and we've so like manufactured things to the point where we feel like if, if we don't understand one part of the system, the whole system is bunk. And that's just not true. That is, that is not true at all. Life is not black and white. We are not machines that have one part broken that you can take out and replace and it's fixed. We're organic. We grow. And it's so important for us to recognize that our understanding grows, right? And it changes. I've taken theological stances that I now look back and I'm like, that was not smart. That was not founded on God's word. I don't know what I was doing. My understanding has grown. And so this spiritual discipline, the holy I don't know, that's something I want to adopt more and more, especially when my college students ask questions that I'm not 100% sure on. I don't want to give anybody false assurance of something. I want them to find the real assurance. Jesus, the person of Jesus, trusting even though I don't know what is going to happen, or when specifically, I know that he is going to be there and he is going to take care of me. And so if we're asking when, we're asking the wrong question. Instead, let us ask the question that I think is beneath that. Where is my assurance? What assurance do I have? And then I would add a second question. How do I respond? What assurance do I have and how do I respond? Both of these questions are answered in this last section here. Verse 14 to 17. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I love that picture. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. He will, they will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so I ask again, what assurance do I have? And what how am I to respond? Verse 14 answers the first question, I think. The assurance we have is that we, as believers in Jesus, are washed white in his blood. Not just in the end, but now. We are washed clean, 100%. And so, I began asking myself this question, why would I fear the end if I believe what Jesus said on the cross, because if I remember right, he said, it is finished. The finished work of the cross, it is done. And so hell or high water, I know that he's got me. I can trust in my salvation 
through my faith, through grace in Jesus Christ. The finished work of the cross cannot be touched by tribulation, no matter how great. We don't need to fear. And how do we respond? I think verse 15 paints a good picture of that. Serve him day and night. We are, we're called to be servants, which is very countercultural today. But we're called to be servants. That's actually what we're to aspire to. Jesus, he is our example. And in Philippians 2, it says this of Jesus, that he did not count his equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he took the form of a servant and he served. He served God. He served the people around him. Jesus is our example and that's what we're to aspire to. I think that is to be our response. Just simplifying our lives a little bit and recognizing, okay, my first act of obedience is to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbors, the people around me. I want to invite the band to come up. But just to wrap a bow on this thing, if you remember last week, at the very end of chapter six, the question is asked, who can stand? Who can stand as these seals are pulled back, as God's judgment is coming out? And chapter seven, this whole chapter is answering that question. Those who will stand in the judgment are those washed in the blood of the lamb. And so if you are washed in him, you will stand. What have you to fear? What have you to fear? Let's not let our life and our decisions be driven by fear. Let's let it be driven by the radical love of Jesus. Allow it to transform how we see other people and how we treat and interact with them. Essentially, let us be and become like him. Would you guys pray with me? God, I, I'm so grateful that we have your spirit in our hearts as a promise seal. That we are sealed until the very end. And we can carry that confidence with us throughout this life, no matter what happens. And more than that, God, your presence in us teaches, corrects, empowers us to live the life you're calling us to. I pray that your presence in us would comfort us, that you would give us strength. You would fortify us with strength to be and do what we couldn't without you. And so God, I pray that as you continue to love the fear out of everyone in this room, would you give us a holy desire to be like you? I feel like that's what I lack, Lord. Sometimes I lack a holy desire. My desires often lie elsewhere. And I lay that down and I ask God, would you work in me to will and act according to your good pleasure? God, would you work in us so that we might be the body of Christ, that we might move that we might expand your kingdom. I pray that you love the fear out of us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.